Today's podcast is brought to you by IQ Air, the air quality experts behind the Perfect 16, the number one rated whole house air purifier. It fits seamlessly into your HVAC system using four advanced microfiber filters arranged in a double V shape. The Perfect 16 features one of the lowest pressure drops in a whole house HVAC air purifier on the market. This protects your investment in clean air and preserves HVAC performance by reducing strain on your HVAC system components and lowering your energy costs. We have the Perfect 16 filtration system in our office and it's absolutely fantastic. There was a noticeable difference in air quality from the moment we had it installed. Get proven purifying performance for the perfect price. Go to www.iqair.com forward slash podcast or call 800-500-4AIR. That's iqair.com forward slash podcast or 800-500-4247. IQ Air first in air quality welcome to the building science podcast welcome to this okay uh welcome to the building science to the building science podcast podcast Podcast. welcome to the building science podcast bringing the human factor to architecture and design brought to you by positive energy in austin texas Okay, welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm here again with my sidekick, Miguel. Welcome back, listeners. And I am also here with Lucas Johnson. And uh, without further ado, Lucas, please introduce yourself. Yes, hello. It's an honor to be part of this. Um, So I'm Lucas Johnson. I'm the Western Regional Manager of 475 High Performance Building Supply. Um, I have spent the last two decades or so um, as a concerned citizen and building scientist uh, (laughs) focused on solving the climate crisis through doing healthy, durable, high-performance buildings. And I've had the honor to work on thousands of projects now, including some very, very amazing Living Building Challenge, Passive House, and other, you know, leading certifications. Um, And it's been an enjoyable career and a challenging career and uh, love to talk about these issues in depth. Fantastic. Yeah. So glad you mentioned issues in depth. Yeah, that, that's what we're going to dig into today. We're going to dig into uh, carbon and um, along the way, probably talk about spray foam. And just by way of introduction, I want to talk about adjectives. Um, adjectives modify the noun that they relate to. And uh, the noun we're going to talk about is energy. And every time most of us in our career have used the word energy, even energy code, there's a missing adjective or there's an implicit adjective and that adjective is operational. Like IECC, it could be called the IOCC, or let's see, IOECC, the International <laughs> Operational Energy Conservation Code. <laughs> the, the other adjective is embodied. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll let Lucas talk about that. But just before you go, Lucas, I want to I want to give like a disclaimer to everyone here, right? This is a prickly topic. Lucas and I recognize that. We're going to do our best to speak with humility and, uh, and accuracy. But at the same time, this is an ongoing topic. Imagine the early days when people said cigarettes were bad for you. You know, that, there was a lot of controversy around it. Or, you know, when I was a kid, the mosquitoes were an issue and they would spray DDT. These trucks would drive down my street and spray DDT into the air. Um, wow. And uh, so things have changed and it might be that we're seeing the beginning of a sea change when it comes to energy and uh, related to energy is carbon. Um, so Lucas, my first question to you is what is the, what is it that you've been studying with, with regard to carbon? 
Sure. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to put it, because one of the points I really like to make as a, as a starting point is if carbon is the thing that we're concerned about, we need to talk about it directly in units of carbon instead of in proxy units of, say, kilowatt hours, BTUs or operational carbon uh, mm-hmm. savings mm-hmm. through a different terminology like energy efficiency. And now energy efficiency is an absolutely wonderful thing and is very, very important. But we need to be delivering energy efficiency in an efficient way. So in other words, we need to deliver efficiency efficiently from a carbon standpoint. That's right. And what that means holistically is that we need to take a look at both the operational carbon savings, which are ongoing into the future, but we also need to look at the embodied carbon of the materials we use to deliver those savings, such as air tightness and insulation materials. That's been the main focus of my career. And we have an amazing opportunity to switch from very, very high embodied carbon impact materials to materials that as a life cycle actually are carbon storing and can help the building become carbon neutral or even carbon negative from the first day it's built or remodeled instead of having a long payback period. Yeah, that's, that's good. You know, it occurs to me that maybe as a, a like a, a precedent or like a, a thought to insert in the beginning here is why are we concerned about carbon? And one of the reasons is that carbon, so carbon is not a bad thing. I'm made of carbon. Miguel's made of carbon. This table, this, I'm at a wood table is made of carbon. Carbon is a, is benign, just like water. But if you drink too much water, it becomes a poison. Too much carbon, specifically when our activity treats the sky like an open sewer, um, too much carbon in the atmosphere <laughs> builds up. And here comes a prickly moment, right? There is a very interesting thing specifically in the high performance buildings community in the building science community where it's as though people pick and choose which science you know whether pick and choose whether they agree with science right oh i agree with building science but not climate science and interestingly there's a certain (laughs) age group there's a certain like um, cultural demographic and typically it's the people who can afford to uh, wonder about climate science. Yeah. yeah it's as the thermodynamics so, stops at the enclosure yeah. or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. yeah. Thermodynamics doesn't account for heat flow in the atmosphere. Insulating layers in our atmosphere yeah. are somehow magic and different than insulating layers in our walls. Right. And what's interesting too, is that that degree of skepticism that can lead to denying that the climate crisis is a real thing while believing in building science at the same time, that, that it's so interesting that you can hold those two belief systems in your yeah. mind. But I accept that that exists, <laughs> and what I will give a compliment to the people that are skeptical of climate science because that skepticism is the core of science. Absolutely, that's that is why science is such an amazing, beautiful thing. That's why I've dedicated my life to being a scientist because it is a data-based endeavor. Right. It's saying we have this idea, a hypothesis, we'll call it. We're going to collect data to support or reject that hypothesis. And based on that data, we're going to make a small conclusion, share it with our community of other very intelligent, passionate people, have them peer review it and come back and build on that research until eventually we can have some degree of a consensus. Now, there's no such thing maybe as actual fact. That's more of a philosophical point. But science gets us as close to real facts as we can ever be with any system that we have available. And I would just ask that if you are open to the fact that 
building science has done an amazing amount for, say, limiting rot and mold in buildings. Maybe that same scientific approach is applied to the whole climate system of the planet is also legitimate and that we should really, really, really be paying attention to this and be very concerned. Well said. Yeah. I and mean, so on the larger concept of trusting science, right? Here we are as a society moving full speed ahead towards self-driving cars. So we're trusting science, right? You know, like when I call someone on my cell phone, do I trust that I'm actually talking to them or, you know, is it is that them on the other end of the phone? Because there was science in the cell phone, right? So it's interesting. Yeah, it, it, I give you credit for, for saying you appreciate the skepticism. I sometimes have trouble with that. There's people picking and choosing which part of science they, they agree with. But you're right that science wanders around and sometimes it doesn't go where it needs to, but it usually self-corrects. Yes. And a lot of my, the reason I've chosen to follow the career I've had is because I, I is in, in general, I love humanity. I love people. I want to create a future that is supportive of us living our best lives, right? For me, climate crisis, sustainability, all of this, it's not so much about saving the planet. That's kind of a ridiculous concept. My background, by the way, is I have a degree in physical chemical biology and a master of environmental uh, science. And, hmm. you know, one of the things that is very clear when you study these subjects in depth is the planet would be just fine and probably actually better off without us. So it's not like we're going to destroy the planet. That's a pretty ridiculous concept. What we're going to do is destroy a planet that supports us living our best lives. That's right. Right. Um, and that's a big problem, right? That's something we should probably mm -hmm. pay attention to. And not just us, uh, but our kids and their kids. And and... Absolutely. And I have a two and a four-year-old shout out to Hazel, Hazel and Nova. Nova. And Hazel and Nova, wonderful children. And I want them to grow up in a, a better world than I did. And that's what I've dedicated my career to doing. And, you know, like, that's why I'm so passionate about this. I try to maintain... Uh, a more subtle approach, a more respectful approach, a more collaborative, engaging approach. But sometimes I just want to yell, stop using so much foam mm -hmm. and concrete, because those things are useful building materials in some applications. There's nothing wrong with using them in the right places, you know, below grade mostly. But when we bring these materials above grade, and there's other options that we could use that are healthier, more durable, provide greater degrees of happiness, and are night and day different as far as the life cycle carbon impact. Um, yeah. Why not? Mm. Why not use those? So I'm talking about specifically stuff like replacing concrete and steel with, say, mass timber, replacing foam-based insulation with ha healthy natural insulation like wood fiberboard insulation or cork, cellulose, sheep wool. There's some really amazing options out there. And what's truly fascinating is instead of the whole Jimmy Carter, like, we need to put on a sweater mm -hmm. for efficiency kind of thing. The lowest life cycle carbon impact options tend to be the highest performance that give us the best comfort, the lowest risk of rot, rot and mold, the healthiest indoor environments. So all we're asking really for people to do is pay just the tiniest bit more up front, which will certainly pay back you know, very quickly and have a huge bit ROI, return on investment over time. Pay that little bit more up front to shift from, you know, using anything from really bad to less bad solutions to invest in what we would call yeah. truly good solutions, right? That are actually going to support their health and the environmental health. Of I love planet. it. I agree. Uh, it's interesting where a lot of this comes from, uh, a lot of the exposure that people first get to things like sheep's wool and 
cork and hempcrete and you know, straw bale or things is actually coming from more of a health perspective than an energy perspective. And then you realize there's multiple kind of simultaneous positive outcomes there. Um, let's go, let's go back one step. That's that, that the comfort and health element is so interesting because if you do want to help, you know, spread this movement, mm-hmm. comfort and health is how you do it. There's no one that's going to sit around saying, I want right. an uncomfortable, unhealthy building, right? So if you start with the framework of let's deliver the most comfortable, healthiest building, and by the way, the same things we're using to maximize your comfort and health are also minimizing your carbon impact and risk of moisture-driven failures, that's a beautiful picture. But I almost always throughout my career, and this is part of why I've been very successful in getting anyone from very conservative to very liberal people to invest in high-performance you know, low carbon buildings, if yeah. you lead with the comfort and the health. That that is the absolute key. And that's how we bring more people, how we make it a bigger tent that gets yeah. more people excited and- to join us. underscoring that the reason that it's the absolute key is because there's this there's this implicit sense when when you talk about even when you talk about energy efficiency like operational energy efficiency certainly when you go to embodied energy which is where i want to take this conversation next there's this implicit um it's like what the person just heard is we're going to need to put you on a diet you're not going to be able to eat the foods you really want to eat anymore mm-hmm. you know um and and there's, there's a truth to that, but it's more like in the industry, uh, well, to the homeowner, we're not going to put them on a comfort diet or a beauty diet or, um, you know, a health diet. In fact, we're going to increase all those things. What does need to happen is this interlocking ecosystem of um, supply houses and material extraction centers and manufacturing centers, you know, and distribution pathways in our society that needs to shift. But not fundamentally. We need to extract different materials, manufacture them differently, you know, move them in the same networks. Okay, and that's a good way to go back a little bit. And let's let's just talk a little bit about why, uh, when we think about sort of the twenty fifty, uh, this twenty fifty goal, and you know, and it's it's going to be beyond the scope of this podcast to uh, to explain why we have such an we have sense of urgency for this threat. I mean, it's profound, <laughs> and it's uh, something we haven't talked about enough on this sure. podcast. So. Operational energy versus uh, embodied energy. Um, could you talk briefly about that? Like introduce the terms. Sure, absolutely. So um, yeah, we've been throwing around the term embodied energy, embodied carbon. I imagine a lot of people are sitting around, what the heck is that? Um, I'll come back to that in a second. It's easiest mm-hmm. to start with operational carbon savings. That's the thing that we're more used to thinking about. Effectively, that's energy efficiency, right? That's how much less carbon that building is going to use moving forward in time for the usable lifetime of that asset or the assets that make up that building, how much less carbon is that building going to emit or create as far as its impact is concerned in comparison to a baseline, usually a code-built home or equivalent building. So operational carbon savings is effectively energy efficiency. And that's very, very important. But it's also critical to note that operational carbon savings are theoretical. Hmm. Now, part of why I love Passive House so much 
is as a scientist, I like to see it when a model meets real world as close as possible. And the realized or real world energy savings that's delivered by Passive House is very consistent to the model. So that's really, really nice to see. There, there is a good correlation between what's modeled as overall savings going forward and what's actually delivered. That's pretty darn close. However, when we're in the face of a changing climate, we have very strange things happening, like Canada has gotten warm enough now that during summer, it's so hot that people are retrofitting very high-performance homes, including passive houses, with air conditioners. And now all of a sudden, you're going to be running HVAC. Yeah, yikes is right. Now all of a sudden, you're running HVAC all year, right? And now that operational carbon savings that you had modeled is going to be fundamentally different and a lot less because you've added a whole yeah. another degree of mechanical system. And we also can't control what people do with plug loads, right? They might bring eight <laughs> plasma screen TVs into the building. Who knows? The building might have major rot and mold failures and have to get torn down in 10 years. We, we don't know that the efficiency is going to deliver the carbon savings we expect. Now, again, to be very clear, efficiency is what most of my career has been dedicated to. I love it. It's a wonderful thing. We should be delivering it. But we need to deliver efficiency correctly. And since our conversation is mostly focused on the carbon, life cycle carbon impact side of things, um, if we're going to take a holistic view of efficiency efficiently, we need to look at what's called embodied carbon. So to dig into what embodied carbon is, it's effectively the energy used throughout the life cycle from finding materials, raw materials, to manufacturing a product. And then oftentimes it can include the energy used to ship a product to a job site, the energy used to install it, and you can even take it all the way to at the end of the life cycle, the energy used to remove the material and what happens, does it sit there and rot, can it be composted or recycled? So there's different mm -hmm. parameters you can set on um, a embodied carbon analysis. Most people are moving towards what would be called upfront carbon emissions, which is generally, uh, the steps from finding the raw material to harvesting to processing to manufacturing and then kind of cut off there um, as far as the embodied carbon impact in the material and then you also want to look at the embodied carbon of shipping that material and installing that material up front as part of a whole project analysis but the embodied carbon for a specific material is generally from um, discovery, as in finding the raw material, through manufacturing the product. And that's that's where the embodied carbon is looked at. Uh, does that make sense yeah, so far? Well done. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think I think you Fantastic. covered it. I have a little metaphor. I, I remember, uh, I don't remember where I read this. Some, maybe it was in a philosophy course. Yeah, I think it was. Someone said, uh, and I was in Washington, near Washington, they said, so could you point to the Potomac River? And it's like, oh, of course, just point to the river. And they say, is that the river or is that just this one moment of the river passing by in this one spot, right? So it's this different different perspective. It's very similar if you say, uh, I don't know. I love that. Point to a piece of sheetrock, right? You know, oh, there it is. It's in my supply house on that stack. Um, but where did it come from? And where is it yeah. going? And we like to try to ignore that. But as we were saying, you know, I, I, thinking about the urgency comment a little more. We, the earth just had its hottest June ever. 
Um, remember that Alaska yes. July recently, I think it was just a few weeks ago, hit 90 degrees in Anchorage, never before been there, right? Uh, wildfires because of that. And, you know, for us to say, well, these, these amazing new records all the time are just random chance. Uh, it's getting harder and harder for people to really buy into that, I think. Another thing on the the existential crisis that you know I think it's worth throwing into the equation as part of my background because it's the core reason I actually got involved with this global warming, climate change, global weirding, as my dad likes to call it. I love that one. Um, <laughs> those are all things we should be concerned about, right? And are a very big issue. But the real existential crisis, from my perspective, is ocean acidification, mm. and. The mechanism that drives that is a lot more direct, and I've actually researched this firsthand. When I was doing my undergraduate in physico-chemical biology at UCLA, I worked in a lab, a chemical oceanography lab, and we were taking seawater samples from all over the world and measuring rates of acidification over time. Hmm. And why is that a big deal, right? Why? Well, if you've seen any of the planet Earth stuff recently or whatnot, you're probably familiar with the term diatoms or phytoplankton. Mm. They're basically these tiny little, uh, you know, <laughs> molecule almost sized organisms that live in, uh, in the, well, they range from that to much bigger, uh, in the ocean. And what they do is they take in sunlight and they do photosynthesis just like plants do. But what people don't realize is these diatoms provide 70% of the oxygen on our planet. Whew. 70, 70, 70% wow. of the oxygen on our planet is provided by phytoplankton. And phytoplankton are very, very sensitive to acid, right? Yeah, they, their little uh, bodies dissolve. Yeah, basically their little bodies dissolve. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a... That's a, a more extreme image than I was going oh, for, okay. but sure, we'll go with that. Their, their little bo- <laughs> poor little bodies dissolve. <laughs> These poor little phytoplankton, they're screaming, no, Uh, but so there's the social justice of phytoplankton, but there's also very importantly, we need oxygen to breathe. So if phytoplankton are gone, that's game over for pretty much all mammalian life on the planet. Right. Yeah. And that's what really spurned me to study this stuff in depth and get into a career trying to retrofit and build new buildings that are hyper efficient. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I delivered efficiency with all kinds of nasty stuff like our friend spray foam that we're going to discuss. And the really frustrating part is when I look back on that, I probably had a net negative impact for the climate crisis or for ocean acidification based on the solutions I was using to deliver efficiency, despite saving tens of millions of kilowatt hours on the thousands of projects I worked on as both ability, utility program manager, all the different angles I've come at this from, so many of those buildings saved a ton of energy, but actually had a higher net climate impact than they would have if we just left them alone. And that is extraordinarily frustrating and a very tough pill to swallow. And I think it's part of why people want to deny these things sometimes, because you have to look at your own work and say, I've made mistakes. And that's a really hard it thing is. to do. And I'll admit it. Yeah. I've made mistakes. You know, I installed hundreds of thousands of square feet of spray foam mm-hmm. before I started collecting data on it and noticing the toxicity issues, noticing the rotten mold issues, and found out about the embodied carbon side of it. And that's really the straw that broke the camel's back for me. Because when you look at the embodied carbon, 
there is no way that spray foam is going to be part of solving the climate crisis. And it's, it's tough to say that. Yeah. And that's as is right now, right? I will give a shout out to, there's a lot of great people, a lot of very smart people working very hard to try to make foam better, to try to make it less toxic, to try to make it easier to install well, to try to decrease the embodied carbon by bringing down, say, the global warming potential of blowing agents. So there's this new solstice blowing agent, mm -hmm. relatively new, mm -hmm. that has very, very low global warming potential. And that's great. But the problem is when we say all of a sudden that if we use solstice blowing agents, spray foam has no global warming issues. That's a very incomplete perspective because we're looking solely at the global warming potential of the blowing agent used during the installation, right? Yeah. And embodied carbon forces you to look at a much more holistic picture, including starting at an oil company saying, hey, we need to find more oil, right? Yeah. And they put a lot of energy and a lot of resources and destroy a lot of the environment trying to find more oil, right? Then the oil's found. And then it's, how do we remove that oil? And all of that energy, all of that infrastructure to remove transport that oil. Transport it, yeah. For. And how do we transport it and process it and process it again and process it again and repeatedly, repeatedly until it becomes the raw material that's used to make the two parts for, you know, on-site two-part spray foam or goes into foam, rigid foam board, and that manufacturing process happens offsite in a factory. But regardless, it's not just the blowing agent. That's one small element of the overall embodied carbon. The embodied carbon is the whole life cycle. Absolutely. Now, yeah, go forward in the life cycle. <laughs> exactly. And now let's take that in contrast to, say, sheep wool or wood fiber insulation. With trees and sheep, they're pretty easy to find, right? Mm -hmm. They're there. And in their life cycles, they've both sequestered carbon. Trees, that very clearly by growing, sequester carbon. And sheep um, store carbon because when they eat grass, the, uh, the grass turns into the wool. And the wool stores something like two kilograms of carbon for every kilogram of grass or something. I forget the exact number. But basically, the point is the wool stores the carbon. And as long as that wool or that wood doesn't rot back into methane or... Uh, get burned back into CO2 in a quick timeline, that material can now store that CO2 when we turn it into an insulation material and put it on a building. And we can have an insulation material that instead of having this life cycle of huge carbon impact, can have a carbon negative life cycle up to the point where we put it on the mm -hmm. building. So we can actually remove carbon impact from the building by putting it yeah, on there. That, that's and amazing. One, one last Please. point. I know I've been monologuing for a while. I apologize. Go, One last point is that very, very fundamentally, going back to something I said earlier, operational carbon savings are fundamentally theoretical. They're wonderful. We should aim for them. We should try to maximize them, but they're theoretical. Embodied carbon is something that we can control as professionals and build in upfront forever into that building. So if we choose to use insulation materials that have very high embodied carbon, that's a problem we've built into the building. It's like trying to put on, it's like putting on weight before you go on a diet, right? <laughs> it doesn't really make sense. Yeah. If we want to solve the climate crisis, we need to take advantage of the materials that build carbon negative into the building ongoing and forever, right? And as professionals, as architects, engineers, builders, building scientists, whatever, 
we have the ability to specify those materials up front. And last point on that is there is no easier sector that I've found to have a dramatic switch in the carbon impact, the upfront carbon impact or embodied carbon impact of the buildings that you're building than with insulation materials. Because framing is often driven by engineers, finishes are often driven by clients. So framing and finishes, hard to control. We should still try to minimize embodied carbon, but that's much harder. No one really cares about what insulation they get in their building. They just want the comfort, the health, the efficiency. They're, they're looking to, most clients are looking to us as professionals to recommend that and aren't going to really fight with mm -hmm. our recommendations. So insulation is something that's really easy to control and easy to swap out without many big arguments, right, with, uh, with clients. And on top of the fact that it's easy to change out, we use enormous volumes of insulation in buildings, right? Think about how much insulation goes into a building. And the fact that we're using a large volume of it means that we have the opportunity when we switch from saying, you know, some analysis I've seen, and these numbers are plus or minus a significant amount, it's worth noting, but I've seen about 100 pounds uh, per cubic foot of carbon dioxide for spray foam as the number, and I've seen about negative 10 for wood fiberboard insulation, right? So bringing this back to the real world, uh, looking at a project I worked on recently, we were looking at um, spray foam versus, uh, and spray foam on the inside and XPS foam board on the outside versus sheep wool on the inside and wood fiber board insulation on the outside. And there was over 100,000 pounds of carbon dioxide delta up front. So there is going to be about 70,000 pounds of carbon dioxide built into the building up front. And this is a small building, like 1,500 oh square feet. 70,000 pounds built into that building up front from those insulation materials. And it went to about negative 30,000 pounds when we switched just the insulation materials, right? And that negative 30,000 pounds, this is a retrofit scenario, matters tremendously, yeah. right? Because now we can start at negative 30 and keep saving with efficiency. And this building's being built in Seattle, and this is a whole other thing to bring up, where you're delivering efficiency matters immensely because some utilities have very low carbon impact electricity. Some utilities have very high carbon impact electricity. And that's why efficiency delivered in Seattle doesn't have as much carbon impact savings as, say, efficiency delivered in Tucson, where it's a very high carbon impact, mostly coal-based electricity versus, say, hydro and renewable-based electricity in the Pacific Northwest. So ironically, the areas that are really doing a great job with efficiency tend to be the areas that actually have high renewable energy content on their grid and therefore aren't saving that much operational carbon savings through efficiency because the grid is already pretty good, right? To summarize, we need to look at both embodied carbon and operational carbon. And operational carbon is basically energy-saved times CO2 or pounds of CO2 per unit of energy saved. So we actually have to convert the energy we predict that we're saving to the carbon that's going to be saved by that in the local utility context, because that changes dramatically depending right. on where you are. We're working with two variables, both of which we don't really know. We don't know the utility grid mix. Um, and we also don't know the owner or occupant behavior <laughs> that's going to ask for the energy exactly use. Exactly right.
Mm-hmm. So, and amazingly enough, you actually can, uh, most, most utilities put out a power mix report every year. So you actually can just pull up this information and figure out roughly what the carbon impact is of your local utility and then basically multiply your expected energy savings by that pounds of kilowatt hour or pounds of CO2 per kilowatt hour and uh, figure that out and know if you're in an area where efficiency is going to save a lot of carbon or if efficiency is going to save less carbon. Yeah. And I was thinking about sort of the human side of this. You you got me, um, you know, how you you can talk to clients about, I really appreciated the point about insulation being this, this sweet spot, this good, good place to start because it's, it's less contentious, right? You're not going to ask the structural engineers to rethink what they've been doing for decades or clients to kind of rethink their what, what they think is a beautiful aesthetic instead you just say look you want the same functional you want this functional outcome you can have it and you can have it in this way that actually is carbon sequestering instead of carbon emitting and then see what you get there is you get you get this project team proud of that proud that they did this yes and then what you're slowly starting to do is is shift the paradigms you're starting to change the stories that they want to tell about their projects. And one last quick point is that like, what is it that prevents people from like me? I was a, I was a builder for 15 years and um, you know, I drive by some of my houses and I want to turn my head like, yeah, I don't remember the fiber, fiberglass bats <laughs> in the walls there. And what is it that prevents that is actually this, this really kind of touchy feely thing about, am I willing to forgive myself? Can I be kind enough to myself to say, yeah, I made that mistake and I'm going to correct it now in the future. Because if I can't, if I feel like this welling up of aggression toward myself and, you know, you're basically in, indicting myself and recriminating myself, hey, you did that, you bad person. Well, then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to the outside world and say, I can't feel that pain. So I'm going to fight and pretend carbon isn't a problem. I'm going to prevent pretend climate change isn't an issue all because I'm unwilling to forgive myself or, you know, it's interesting how psychology and behavior uh, are intertwined and the future of the planet is, is woven in. Completely agreed. And I think that there's a huge philosophical shift that's happening in the construction industry and trades, and it's all very positive. You know, there's been so much kind of fear and anger built into this industry and so many mistakes and so much toxicity. And now we're moving towards something that's based more on not to be too cheesy, but like compassion and forgiveness, right? Saying, hey, we should help other people and we should forgive the mistakes we've made that they've made. There's this expectation that we should all know everything about everything, but we should actually just take pride in the fact that we don't Mm -hmm. know everything. And we make small steps. That's exciting. And and we make small steps. So like, you know, if you're using a ton of spray foam right now, I'm not saying immediately shut down your rig. Just start trying to use less and less and less. So in other words, one of the sayings that we have is foam, less is best, right? Yeah. There there are applications where it's useful. There are places mm-hmm. where it Certain makes sense. Though, yeah. But we need to, yeah, and we need to think more carefully about where we're using it, why we're using it, and what the holistic, say, carbon impact is of using it. And going back to our conversation about how do we actually get people to do this, comfort and health. And part of the reason why I love insulation as the focus area for driving this is insulation that is the lowest carbon tends to provide the highest degree of comfort and health. So people actually get really excited about it. Like 
when we work on a project with the Havelock wool or the Gutex wood fiber insulation or whatever, people actually get excited about the fact that they're using reclaimed wood mm-hmm. or reclaimed sheep wool. And when is the last time you've heard of someone getting excited about insulation? It's a really weird thing to see. <laughs> it's really amazing to watch this happen. People actually get excited. Not on about this show. I think there are a lot of people who are excited about insulation. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. This is the, <laughs> I'm talking to my people. I clearly am very excited about insulation, but uh, it's because insulation itself as a material isn't that exciting necessarily, but what it does, it, the, the, the comfort, the health, the operational carbon savings, insulation does so many wonderful things for us. And because of my background in building science and uh, high performance and passive house, I do have to say that insulation needs to be combined with proper air tightness and vapor control and water management. It needs to be a holistic solution. You can't just do the insulation. You need air tightness and vapor management, water yeah. management, along with it. Do you know if sheep have the same uh, methane emissions? I want to get back to the spray foam, but sheep have the same methane emission issue as cows and pigs? Yes, it's similar. Um, and it's the, the technical term for it is enteric fermentation. So basically when they eat uh, their food, they have a mechanism that kicks in in their digestion that leads to them burping methane. Uh, and it's not as big a deal as people make it it is an issue for sure but what's interesting about Havelock wool in particular and part of why we got excited to work with them is they're using a waste product from the industry that exists anyway so the it's it's hard to determine this is where the embodied carbon stuff gets very complicated it's hard to determine how much of the methane emissions from an industry that exists anyway should be applied to a product made out of a waste product from that industry that was just going to rot into methane or be burned into CO2 or whatever, um, they reclaim that wool and turn it into a useful product. And some of it, some of the wool is, you know, virgin. It just depends on the supply. But the large majority of what they used is reclaimed wool that wasn't going to be used for anything else. So, yeah, that gets tough. But long story short, yes, the sheep do have the methane emissions and that does need to be accounted for. But even when you account for that, the life cycle impact of the wool insulation is still somewhat mm-hmm. carbon negative. The last number I saw was around, say, negative three pounds per cubic foot. Most of the time this is talked about in different units, but I like to talk about it in pounds per cubic foot because people can imagine mm-hmm. that more easily. So like, yeah, wool's probably like negative three. Wood's probably more like negative eight to ten. So it, it's it's still good, but like that the the enteric fermentation, the sheep burping methane does decrease theoretically the overall life cycle carbon savings of wool versus another option, for instance. But the wool is also the most healthy insulation I'm aware of. It's super high performance. It can't rot and mold. It manages water vapor incredibly. Helps regulate humidity to keep you comfortable. Uh, irreversibly bonds formaldehyde. Like wool is a miracle fiber. So there's a lot of reasons beyond the carbon to use it. Um, it's awesome that it's so high performance, but also carbon negative. And that's that's an example of what I'm talking about is these solutions, these insulation options that are carbon storing or carbon negative uh, from a life cycle standpoint tend to be the healthiest, highest performance, most durable options as well. 
And that's really exciting because you don't have to ask anyone to sacrifice anything. You're just saying, use the best stuff. This wool in particular is from New Zealand where, you know, the sheep industry is core to the entire culture. So these sheep live better yeah. lives than I do. I'm pretty confident. I don't so, know your life. <laughs> I've seen videos of where they're getting their wool. And I'm, uh, I mean, I live a great life. Don't get me wrong. But I see these sheep hanging out by these beautiful lakes in New Zealand. And I'm kind of like, well, you know, mm-hmm. I could see being a sheep. Switching from uh, wool to, to cellulose. I'm remembering there's a quote, and I think it was maybe Bruce King or somebody was talking about trees as these naturally self-replicating carbon sequestering you know shade producing life forms that are also structural and yeah we can't overlook just because they're all around us all the time doesn't mean we need to go invent a better technology than a tree although hemp might be better hemp is amazing and there's a lot of future now that industrial hemp's legal and all that like that's a product that we're looking for. So if anyone is aware of great hemp products out there, let please do let me know because we are actively looking to start carrying some options. Um, I think mm-hmm. hempcrete in particular is cool in the sense that in its life cycle, the way it's made is, you know, basically hemp stock with lime and water mixed on site. It actually sequesters CO2 right there, from yeah. the air on your job site to solidify into a carbonate structure. I mean, that's really cool. And that's actually carbon sequestration because you're fundamentally shifting it from a CO2 molecule into a carbonate that's going to be stored indefinitely, which is a little bit different than, say, the wool and the wood fiber, which is carbon storing in the sense that the, the wool and the, the wood at the end of their life cycle, hopefully hundreds of years from now, when the bu- if the building's been built right, um, that carbon will come back into the atmosphere as a carbon neutral element. Let's mm-hmm. go back to wood for a second. Wood is our fundamental mechanism through which we can fight the climate crisis more effectively than anything else. I was driving to Portland the other day to do some job site visits and had a lot of time to reflect. And I came to that same conclusion, too. It's funny. We have people talking about massive levels of geoengineering and, wow, if we could only figure out something that could sequester CO2 and help clean the air and provide useful materials and (laughs) wait a second we have trees (laughs) you know i like to say mother nature is our greatest scientist she's had billions of years experimenting in the real world right so the tree is the perfect way to address the climate crisis in that we can grow them sequester or actually store technically co2 uh, into the tree and then the tree can become the basis for light frame construction mass timber construction the scraps from the tree can be turned into wood fiber insulation to insulate the building. And then we can limit our plastics to, you know, our air tightness and vapor control layers and have them be a very small amount that makes the sustainable, healthy wood fiber insulation and wood framing of the building last for hundreds of years so that, that any carbon impact in that building is spread out over a much longer time and that efficiency delivered is delivered for much longer. So trees are just this amazing resource that we have that if we look at them correctly we can create this cycle of basically controlled sustainable forest where the that we have um this cycle of cutting down the trees turning it into useful products and regrowing the trees and a lot of the co2 sequestered from trees is in the first right. uh, first years mm-hmm. of growth because they grow faster earlier in their lives so it, it just gives us this this gift that's going to let us again improve the world by putting more trees and help solve the climate crisis and create better buildings. So 
yeah, I am a huge fan of moving towards as much wood as possible with the huge asterisks that that wood needs yeah. to be from sustainably managed forests that are absolute best practice because wood from unsustainable forests can That's be highly right. impactful. Yeah, to put some color on that there. If we had a magic wand and we could suddenly get all the countries of the world to plant trees on all the unused land that's um, that's suitable for reforestation, that actually is a maybe necessary but not sufficient step in the sense that uh, we would still need to cut our emissions, right? Because we're growing our emissions faster than our car- these of billions course. of trees could ever soak it up. But I, I agree with you that it, it's definitely, we need to do everything we can. We need a multi-pronged approach and using wood when it, where it makes sense is really important. And to your point about um, sustainably managed, yeah, I mean, the, the difference, people don't quite understand that, what is it, the American Forest and Paper Association has their own version of the Forest Stewardship Council rating, and it's called SFI, Sustainable Forestry Initiative. And it's a radically yep, different yep. standard, but you know, you see SFI certified on a piece of wood, you, if you don't know, then you don't know. <laughs> And SFI has caught a lot of flack over time for not being rigid enough. And it's a different kind of self-reporting approach. And it's, it's you know, it's, I've heard good things yeah, in the sense that good. SFI has improved a bit over time. But FSD is for sure the, like, like the global go-to standard of, you know, Living Building Challenge, for instance, uses FSC as the requirement for wood. And FSC isn't perfect. Nothing's perfect. But it's, it is the best that we have right now um, at any sort of scale that makes sense to actually talk about solving a crisis of this scale, right? That's the yeah, other thing we need to, to look at. Like, for instance, cork, amazing insulation product. I love cork. Awesome. Great for floors too. Wonderful product. But there's only so much cork on the planet. And if we use all of it, it's not going to really do that much for the climate crisis. Whereas trees are a much more scalable thing. Sheep are a very scalable thing. Recycled paper, so cellulose a very scalable thing. Although with less stuff being printed, there are kind of some supply issues that are coming up with cellulose. But we also do need to be looking at, yeah, how can we, if we really truly get serious about solving the climate crisis, how do we get enough of these materials quickly enough to do it, right? And we're a ways away from that scale. And that is a problem that I would love to help solve, right? Mm Because that's the kind of problem we should be solving. We mentioned wood replacing steel. Let's compare like the life cycle of steel. You know, it's, it has the same sorts of, like you did a great job talking about material extraction and processing, manufacturing, transit, and then use for insulation. You, talk, you talked about oil, actually spray foam, which is based on oil extraction. And if you do the same thing with steel, sure, now sure. they're both there in use. And now the building reaches the end of its usable lifestyle, lifetime or a new owner just decides that, you know, they want to, I don't know, remake this building, tear it down and start a new one, which is painful right there, but we could get back to that in a minute. Um, and so you, you, you take out a steel girder and you take out a, let's say you could take out a cubic foot of steel, which you really wouldn't versus a cubic foot of spray foam. Where do they both go? Good question. I would imagine the steel would be reclaimed or recycled because it's very expensive yeah. material and it's heavy and hard to ship. Uh, spray foam, 100% is going to landfill and or uh, maybe hazardous waste site. And the other tragedy is if foam has touched wood, the wood also yeah. has to then go 
to the dump rather than being reclaimed and reused. Um, so the foam doesn't just itself have to be wasted. It also makes a lot of the other building have to be wasted, which is that's exactly really right. Yeah. So, outcome. and that's what I wanted to put the lens on here and focus in on it. When people talk about spray foam, and it's and we find ourselves in one of these conversations where people say um, intelligent people can disagree on spray foam. Well, typically that assessment is constrained to the use phase, and it doesn't look at the upstream. Doesn't mm -hmm. look at extraction, processing, manufacturing, transit. Well, transit, I guess, could be, you could say that it's roughly the same for either. But then the end of life phase, spray foam is essentially a natural. It is not part of any natural mm -hmm. ecosystem. There are no microbes that eat it. It has no ability to come back around and do a second lap. I mean, we can do some down cycling of some plastics. But that's a fundamental difference uh, between the wood, cellulose, even steel. Um, and uh, another very, very important thing to me is social justice and social equity. And the install phase, not only is there the global warming potential, there's also the fact that you have to dress up like there's an Ebola outbreak to install it because it's a very dangerous thing to install in the sense that it releases a lot of toxicity and it expands quickly. And if you breathe it, you could suffocate. So the question becomes, is it fair that we ask people to risk yeah. their lives to install an insulation product, right? The amount of training that you have to go through to install spray foam safely Absolutely. is intense, right? Whereas if you're using sheep wool, you can literally open up the bag and take a nap on the insulation. And if you want to see that, there's a lot of, uh, if you look up Havelock wool on Instagram, you'll see a lot of people taking naps in the insulation. It's kind of become a trope. Uh, yeah. And the wood fiberboard insulation too. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a healthy, natural material that's easy to work with. And here, here's a, an image for you. A lot of people, uh, young carpenters get into green building thinking it's going to be this amazing thing. They get to the job site and then there's a dumpster full of like, wood and foam and you're like what is going on here yeah and then you're like hey you know let's wrap the building in some insulation and you start cutting all the eps and foam beads are flying into the air and you're just thinking about all the plastics in the ocean and all this horrible stuff right and then you switch to wood fiber insulation and not only is it healthier and you know it's vapor open so it can actually dry and all that stuff but when you're cutting it all you're doing is creating sawdust that's going to decompose naturally yeah. it's not unhealthy at all right and so for the installer, it's more fun and safer to work with these materials too. So not only is it good for the environment, it's good from a social equity and Absolutely. Like a societal. Absolutely. I got to interject yeah. a quick joke, a true story. Live in Austin here, neighbor, well, a house across the street, rental house. Um, kind of tragic. A person died in there when they went in to find out. They, they found out that well, this person was oh, growing wow. mushrooms. And they didn't know what was going on. So they just hazmat suited themselves and they cordoned off the street. You know, there are police everywhere. And this is right across the street from my house. And my daughter is like six months old at the time. And so I walk outside and see all these flashing lights and walk outside. And there's this big, you know, orange fence barricade and these guys with hazmat suits. Guy touches his little re respirator speaker thing. And I walk up, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm like wearing shorts, you know, no shoes, like, hey, what's up? First thing he says to me is, Shh, there's nothing to worry about here, sir. <laughs> and I'm like, 
dude, you're wearing a hazmat suit. <laughs> like, should I get my daughter out of here? What's going on? <laughs> Nothing to worry about. <laughs> Nothing right? to see here. <laughs> Look at the social demographic of the people that we expose to the you know, hazardous chemicals in our world. And it's, it's just, it's an unavoidable, you know, byproduct, I think of a lot of value preference system structures that need to be rethought. And, and I really think in coming back again to the human psychology, human heart is we need to have the ability to rethink it. Well, and the, the, you know, a joke I've heard about spray foam is it's the only industry where chemists get yeah. paid 15 bucks an hour, right? Cause yeah. you are doing on-site chemical manufacturing fundamentally when you blow foam into a building and chemicals are normally manufactured in labs with highly controlled environmental conditions. And I don't know if anyone, I challenge anyone that's listening to tell me they've been on a job mm-hmm. site with highly controlled environmental conditions, right? Uh, it usually doesn't exist. Maybe, maybe if you're building a laboratory building at a, at a university or something, right? Yeah. It's, it's incredibly challenging to, you know, do these things. And part of the problem is, you know, you have a, an, an architect say who can just draw a line on a pay, uh, you know, on the plan set and say spray foam. And then that meets code. It's easy. It's simple. It looks like it's going to be a complete so- solution. Theoretically, it sounds great. But if you look at the holistic toxicity, difficulty of the installing embodied carbon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the fact that as buildings move, the foam can fail and it's all of the upfront and ongoing issues that can occur the question fundamentally becomes, is it worth it? And why are we doing that? Right? We have to take a really holistic standpoint. Yeah. So one, one last thing I'll say on this is when you're trying to convince people to do this stuff, if, if you're listening right now and you're like, I really want to do healthy, durable, carbon negative buildings, right? One of the most powerful tools you can do is don't price out conventional yeah. options mm-hmm. versus best practice, good options, right? Just price out the good options, say, as a professional, this is what I recommend. Does it meet your budget? And if it doesn't meet your budget, then we value engineer. And here's the other temptation. Sometimes we say, okay, uh, I want to do the wood fiber board exterior insulation, but you know what? We can't afford that. Let's just do foam instead. No, don't do foam instead. Run an analysis and say, if I do foam, is there going to actually be a net carbon savings? Usually the answer is not. So the answer actually becomes just don't do exterior insulation on that building because they can't afford exterior insulation. Don't do a less bad or really bad exterior insulation option if you can't afford the good one. Just don't do exterior insulation if you don't have to, right? And, you know, of course, model it out from energy performance, client comfort goal. You know, you have to look at it as a holistic picture. But I guess that's really my point is when we make these decisions, particularly around air tightness and insulation approaches, we need to be looking at life cycle health impact, life cycle comfort, life cycle carbon, and how long and how much that's going to influence the life cycle or lifetime, usable lifetime of the building uh, because of issues with, say, rot and mold. For instance, foam is vapor closed, so it prevents drying, whereas wood fibers vapor open and promotes drying. Um, and as we move towards very high performance, very airtight, well-insulated buildings, we really need to do a better job promoting drying because well-insulated buildings have a lot less heat moving through them. Fundamentally, I mean, that's what insulation is supposed to do, which means a lot less drying potential. Old buildings, you know, inefficient, leaky, uh, air leak- high air leakage, low insulation with big heating system can bake themselves dry. 
new buildings, great insulation, great air tightness, small little heating and cooling system, can't bake itself dry. So we need to be using um, materials that promote drying so that we have long lasting buildings. So Lucas, we're getting to the end of our time. I just want to thank you for uh, caring and I thank you for your expertise and thank you for sharing your thoughts. And I just want to emphasize very briefly the the point that you were making at the end there, I mean, I'm not going to go into the which direction vapor open, vapor closed. And you know, I've just done a bunch of woofy models here. And it's actually a complicated thing about how to keep a building dry. But to the larger point of those of yeah. you listening, chances are good that you're on the decision-making team for the projects, especially if you're an owner or a developer, but all the professionals on a project team, it's your responsibility to be the expert. We don't ask our homeowners, you know, do you want a stainless steel woven braided brake line on this car? Right. The professionals, the engineers, they, they shape the car, they spec the cars, you know, and we get good outcomes from that. And it's interesting on houses, how we seem to think everything can be trade-offs. Um, we can have cheaper and, you know, like, like the last thing, very last thing I'll say, and then let's turn it over to you for goodbyes is uh, organic food, right? We as a society are generally, not even generally, we're purchasing significant more organic foods because of pesticide exposure. We know it's better for the soil, better for the environment, contains fewer preservatives, less antibiotics, you know, growth hormones, all these things. And we're doing it and we're making that shift. So for someone to say, oh, the society cannot make the shift in the building industry. That's just not paying attention. That's just arguing for the past. Any last words before you jet out? Uh, well, first of all, I just want to say thank you both for all the work that you're doing. Thank you, everyone that's listening, for all the work that you're doing out there. And if this was engaging to you, um, feel free to get in we'll touch. We'll put your with contact me. information. Um, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, Lucas Johnson. Okay, yeah, feel free to get in touch. I'm happy to share resources that I have. Um, sign up for the Embodied Carbon Network. Yay. That's the single greatest central source of information I'm aware of in this subject area. And also, fundamentally, as a building scientist on a building science podcast, I implore you, please just look at data and look at data for a holistic life cycle approach from a health, comfort, carbon impact, and durability standpoint. Look at at least those four factors when you're making your air tightness and insulation decision options. And it'll make it incredibly clear that you can do the healthy, durable, sustainable, carbon negative options. And when you price them out with their client, with your clients, you're going to be surprised that they're probably only about 1% more on the overall project scope. And very, very, very easy to get people to do when you say, it's only 1% more on your overall budget, which is a rounding error, and it actually allows you to achieve the goals that you set for building this house. You wanted a comfortable, healthy home with a minimized carbon impact, and we can truly deliver that for just the tiniest bit more up front. Is that worth it? I would have a hard time accepting an argument for no, so I would say that yes. That is worth it. Well said, man. That's a great place to end. I think that people, they think they want money, but what they really want is what money gives, which is satisfaction and meaning um, or can give. Thank you well so much said. for your time, Lucas. Well Good luck getting your next appointment on time. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. <laughs> and thank you all very much for listening. <laughs>